If you have your Bibles this morning, and I trust that you do, if you can open with me to two different places, Exodus 17 and 1 Corinthians 10. So Exodus 17 and 1 Corinthians 10, and welcome to week five of our Jesus in the Old Testament series where we are walking through the Old Testament and looking at pictures, whether it be through prophecies, whether it be through types, or whether it be through Jesus presently appearing, um, seeing him in the Old Testament. And what we are coming to see through this series is that the whole Bible, all of it, is about Jesus. As believers, we can see examples of his presence and assurance all through scriptures, even the Old Testament. You know, we often think, if we're not careful, that Jesus only being physically present in the New Testament, but not the Old Testament. But what we fail to realize is he has been active from the very beginning. From the very beginning, Jesus has been active. And it's so important to, to study how Jesus makes his presence known in every part of, of the Bible, because that will help us experience more of his presence in our day-to-day lives. So because Jesus is not absent in the pages of Scripture, it means that he's not absent in our lives either. He's not absent in the pages of our stories and what we are going through. The Word establishes that when we can't see what's ahead, we can trust the one who's already there. He's already there. He's been and forever will be. From beginning to end, it has always been about Jesus. Now, to kind of switch gears to where we're going today, a long time ago, a long, long, long time ago, back in 2013, the, the Oxford English Dictionary added a word to its hollowed pages. The word was FOMO. Does anyone know what that word is, FOMO? So a few of you maybe do. It is, means the fear of missing out. The fear of missing out. And FOMO is being anxious that others are experiencing something that you aren't getting to experience, that you're missing out on it. And that is what drives us to continue to try to keep up, to try to to measure up, to not miss out on what is, is happening. Otherwise, in our minds, we become invisible. That's why we have a day and age that constantly checks Facebook and Twitter and emails and texts and Instagram and Pinterest and all of these other things. And although maybe social media has exaggerated that um, FOMO to a, a, different extam- a different standpoint, it's not a new phenomenon, meaning it's always been. In fact, I believe that it is FOMO that led Satan to deceive Eve. When Satan came to Eve, he basically said, listen, Eve, God's holding out on you. God's not giving you what he could give you. You're missing out on so much more. You're missing out on what you could have if you did this on your own. The, the root of FOMO is this. It's the thought that God does not have your best interest or my best interest at heart. So that he really isn't essentially good. That we really can't count on his goodness over your life or my life. So therefore, if we can't count on his goodness, then all of my significance, all of my security, all of my sense of worth has to come from somewhere else but him. So we begin to look everywhere else for that. Yet, let me just say this. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches us that not only is God good, God is the standard of all goodness. So God is the standard of goodness. He is 
And when we read scriptures like all things work together for the good of those who love him, understand that's true. That's a reality. But here's the problem. You and I don't get to determine what good is. God does. He determines the good. We don't. So we trust him in that. Do you think of God as good? Do you think of God as being generous? Do you think of God as giving you what you need in every area of your life? Do you think of God as caring for your eternal joy and also your earthly joy now? Or do you see God with his arms crossed inventorying everything about your life that disappoints him? Do you see God as willingly withholding things that you think will bring you happiness and God is withholding those things from you? How do you see him? How do you see him? And true, sometimes God's goodness isn't easy to see and sometimes it's not easy to understand. In fact, the Bible says God will even test us. But... It's for our good. God will test us for our good. So no amens on that one because we just don't like tests. But he will do it for our good. And our text today, where we come, brings us to an incident in the life of the people of Israel after they crossed the Red Sea where, this is going to shock you, where they grumbled. In fact, today's text marks the third grumbling incident in the life of Israel the people of Israel, once they crossed the Red Sea. In Genesis 15, they grumbled because they came to a place called Marah, but the waters there were bitter. And of course, God made those waters sweet. In chapter 16, they grumbled again because they didn't have food. So God sent them manna, little wafers made with honey, or think, think Krispy Kreme. So God gave them Krispy Kreme donuts from heaven so heavenly Krispy Kreme donuts. The, the picture is this. They complained. God provided. God opened the Red Sea before them. God turned bitter water into sweet water. God gave them Krispy Kreme donuts from heaven. God gave them a heavenly GPS system. A pillar of cloud by day and fire by night to not only protect them and lead them um, to show them his presence. God had done all of that for them and more. And yet here they are complaining. And what we must come to see is that we are no different than the Israelites and our distrust, our sinfulness, even oftentimes, maybe even our complaining. Yet praise be to God, God is no different to us in his goodness. He is good to us, providing for our daily needs, providing for our great spiritual needs. So let's dive in this morning. If you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor God's word together. The verses will appear before you. They'll be on the screen as well. We're going to read Exodus 17, 1 through 7, and then 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 4. So beginning at Exodus 17, verse 1, all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Riphidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? 
But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of that place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Now let's look quickly at 1 Corinthians 10, and let's tie this together. In 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 4, Paul writes these words, And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Let's pray. Father, we just pray today that you would show us Jesus. In the midst of our own thirsting, in the midst of our own dehydration, spiritual dehydration, Lord, help us even today to come to see Jesus. You are still the living water. You are still that which satisfies completely. And Lord, just show us, Father, just your ability to meet our deepest needs. Father, meet those. They quench our thirst. Speak, O oh God, in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated. So after their rescue from, from Egypt, Israel was led into the wilderness. They were led um, into a place where provision was not um, as readily available as, as Eden, as the Garden of Eden. There was no low-hanging fruit in the wilderness to satisfy their need. Furthermore, the people began to look back at Egypt that was a place of slavery and say such things as if only we were back there, the place of milk and honey. And it's like, no. Egypt was never a place of milk and honey for you. It was a place of slavery and bricks. And they wanted to go back there. They desired to go back to that place of slavery. However, over and over again, it was demonstrated that the provider, their provider with a capital P, went with them every step of the way. Providing for them in every way. And as Christians, we all go through wilderness experiences where provision seems far away, where we feel like we, we can't get or there's what we need isn't around for us. And when we come to Exodus 17, we realize that the setting is in the wilderness of Rephidim. Now, Rephidim is kind of a weird thing because the name Rephidim means rest. But there was no rest here. There was no comfort here. There was no water here. And dehydration for them was, was imminent. Thirst caused the people of Israel to panic, and that panic turned into fearful complaining. The Israelites accused their leader, and by extension, they accused their God, saying, why did you bring us out here just to kill us off? Give us water now. You know, what should have been a place where God tested the people, and the people came to understand God's provision and power, and instead became a place where the people tested God? Let me just say very clearly, God testing us, good thing. Us testing God, not so much. 
not so much. So this became a place where they tested God. God led them to this difficult place in order to prove his power and his presence to them. And they missed it. They completely missed it. And through this discouraging and through this defeating event in the life of Israel, we see a picture of Jesus who was struck on our behalf to give us living water, showing us that it is Jesus who is our satisfaction. It is Jesus who gives us what we can't find anywhere else. And it is Jesus who is with us even in the wilderness, even in those barren places. May we not miss Jesus here. So I want to lay before us this morning three pictures that we see um, in this text. The first picture, and this is going to hit too close to home, but the first picture is this. We see a grumbling people. A grumbling people. And I apologize in advance because this is going to hurt a little bit. It's one thing for God to take the people out of Egypt. It's another thing for God to take Egypt out of the people. In fact, it's one thing for God to take us out of the world. It's another thing for God to take the world out of us. And we read here in verses 1 and 2, there was no water for them to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? But here's the key. Why do you test the Lord? The heads of the people of Israel were filled with irrationality. Their hearts were flaming with fury against Moses. Their hands were clutching stones, ready to throw at Moses' head. They were ready to stone him. Their circumstances were, were in control of them, and emotionally, they were out of control. In fact, I would say this. They were suffering a panic attack and a temper tantrum at the same time. We ever been there? We're panicking and yet we're throwing a complete temper tantrum and they took it out on Moses. Yet even though they murmured at Moses directly, they were calling God into question because Moses was God's representative to them. He was the one that represented them before God. So think about this. What craziness this was in this moment re rebelling against the one who had shown faithfulness to them time and time again. And they thought they had come to a place where God must not be here because water is not here. We don't have what we need here, so God can't be here. And in their very broken and their very bad theology, they could not conceive of a God who would bring them to a place like this. And brothers and sisters, there are times in our lives where Satan tempts us to do the very same thing. We are tempted to say, how could, if, a God, if God loves me, how could he bring me here? If God loves me, how could he allow me to go through this? And what we learn from this is just how distrustful the human heart is. Despite the many ways that God has cared for us, that God has protected us, that God has delivered us we still doubt him. I think of the words of A.W. Pink, a theologian who says, from this, from this event, we learn the unvarying tendency of the heart to distrust God. He said, anything in short for the heart but God, meaning your heart will trust in anything else but God. Then he says, the heart would rather lean upon a cobweb of human resources than upon the arm of an omnipotent 
God. That shows us how sick our heart is. We would rather lean on a cobweb of our human resources than trust in God. And then he says this, And the smallest cloud is more than sufficient to hide his blessings from us. So when the littlest difficulty comes into our lives, where is God? God's not here. And we begin to complain and we begin to grumble. In Philippians 2, 14, the Apostle Paul writes these words, Do all things without grumbling. Let me say it again, church. Do all things without grumbling. Paul understood that grumbling is the air that we breathe. What I mean by that is this. We breathe it in, and then we speak it out, and oftentimes we don't even know that we're doing it. We don't even know that we're doing it, and yet we become such a grumbling and complaining people. Now, I want to be clear here. I want to be careful here. We need to understand the difference between groaning and grumbling. Now, in Romans 8, we are told that creation itself is groaning, that we are called to groan. So we groan here and now because of the suffering of this world, because the world is broken. And in the brokenness of this world, we groan to God. We groan to him and we look to him in hope. But grumbling is different than groaning. Grumbling is not like stating your your case passionately before God like the psalmist did, but always ending in praise. No, grumbling comes from a unbelieving hearts think of it this way you had two people at the cross with jesus one humbled himself the other grumbled his way to death really grumbled his way to hell you you have that picture when things go wrong when life does not meet your expectations or mine we are quick we are so quick to begin to grumble and complain you know what we do We lay all the blame squarely on the shoulders of God, even demanding answers. C.S. Lewis observed this. He said, the ancient man approached God as the accused person approaches his judge. So he said, basically, the biblical man used to approach God. God's the judge. I'm the one on trial, so I approach God humbly. But then he says this, yet for the modern man, the roles are reversed. The modern man is the judge. And God is in the dock, meaning God is on the witness stand. He is quite a kindly judge if God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease. He is ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God being acquitted. But the important thing is that man is the judge. We so think in this world that we live in that we're the judge and God has to answer to us. He has to answer to us for the things that he do. You know, we live in a world where people claim that they have the ability to reach their own verdict when it comes to God. They, de- they demand answers from God before becoming Christians. And listen, some questions are legitimate, without a doubt, but the motivation for asking the questions makes all the difference. Are we asking from a genuine desire to know God and trust God, or are we raising objections based on our refusal to believe in him? Listen, God loves to answer the questions of the honest seeker who is hurting. But for those who think that God must meet their demands, they will never know God. They will never know God. And the question for us this morning is, is there an area in your life right now where you, like Israel, 
have been brought to a barren place and you don't have the answers right now that you think you need. If you're there, here's the question. Are you testing the Lord or are you trusting him? Are you testing him saying, God, how can you do this to me? God, how, how this and how that? Or are you trusting him? Are you groaning because of the suffering yet hoping in him? Or are you grumbling? Again, grumbling is the air that we breathe. We, if we're not careful, we breathe it in, we speak it out, and we don't even know that we're doing it. But it shouldn't be for the child of God because God has done so much for us. What you have here is you have a grumbling people, but then secondly, you have a merciful and providing God. You have a merciful and providing God. Why? It would have been God's right to destroy the people then and there. God should have done it, could have done it, but instead God was gracious to them, leading Moses to the, a very, to the rock of, of mercy. And God is basically saying this, I've come through before, I will come through again. And let me say that again. For the children of God here, our God has come through before. He will come through again. Don't know what that is in your life. He will come through again and again and again and again. But look at verses 5 and 6. You can see on the screen, The Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go before I will stand Behold, I will stand before you, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. On a side note, quick, just quick side note, do you know another place in Scripture where the words pass on and strike are used together? So God says to Moses here, pass on before the people, strike the rock. Another verse where these um, pass on and strike are used together is Exodus 12, at the Passover, when God met another need in the life of the people of Israel. So God calls Moses to take his staff and to strike a rock. And this staff must not be seen as like a wizard's wand. This isn't like Harry Potter here where Moses comes and he just waves his wand, abracadabra, and, and here it comes. No, this staff was simply the rod that Moses had used to lead the sheep, to, to herd sheep in the wilderness before God called him in Exodus 3. In fact, in Exodus 4, this same staff or rod became a snake. And I'm so thankful. I read, I read Exodus 4. It became a snake, and it says Moses ran away. I'm like, way to go, Moses. Makes me feel a whole lot better about myself. But in Exodus 7, Moses uses this staff to turn the Nile into blood. In Exodus 9, he uses this staff to call forth hell um, from, from heaven all over Egypt. The Bible even goes so far as to call this staff the staff of God. So Moses takes this staff, which at one time was an instrument of judgment for the people of Egypt, and now this instrument of judgment is going to become an instrument of mercy for the people of God. Don't miss it. Don't miss parallels that are happening here. Don't miss types that are happening here. That which was, a, was used for judgment would become a place of mercy. Don't miss it. In this moment. So in one of the most incredible passages of scripture, God tells Moses to, to raise the staff of judgment and strike the rock. And yet in this instance, when the rock is stricken, it's not condemnation, but, but mercy. The staff here represents the power of God. But the rock 
represented God himself. He was himself the provider. There would be no question in anyone's mind. They, they were asking this question, is God with us? There'd be no question now. God is among us, and he is our source of water. And what did the water prove? It proved everything about God that the Israelites were calling into question. They were demanding his provision. They were denying his protection. They were wondering where his presence was. But the water flowing from this rock proved all of these things. It proved that God had the power to provide. It proved that this rock showed the presence of God. The Israelites want to know if God is with us or not. Again, he was with them. And then Moses was told to strike the rock, and when he did, water flowed. And according to Psalm 118, or 114, excuse me, verse 8, this water that flowed formed a pool of water, and their thirst was quenched. There was abundant water for all. All who drank were satisfied. Once again, we see that God performed a miracle in grace when Israel deserved nothing but judgment and discipline. And this is where we see, don't miss this, God is so gracious, so compassionate, so patient, so understanding, and so loving toward his people. God puts up with us, he provides for us, and he loves us, not because we deserve it, but because he's love. Because this is who he is. And think about this, before we move on, how much water was provided here? Usually when I picture this scene, I, I picture Moses standing before this rock. He strikes um, this rock with his staff, and a stream of water begins to flow like, a, like an elementary school water fountain. And all of Israel is just waiting in line, one after the other, and they walk up, and they, they drink, and they move on. But that's not the picture. We're talking about water for over 2 million people and for over probably 2 to 3 million animals. That's a lot of water. Let's say that everyone got a gallon of water to drink because that's eight glasses a day and God can do that. Plus animals get their gallon. That's five to six million gallons just for that one day. According to Exodus 19.1, they were here for three months. That's 90 days times six million gallons, which is 540 million gallons of water. Now, if my math is correct, and that's saying a lot because normally it's not, but if it is correct, that means they, enough water flowed to fill up 818 Olympic-sized swimming pools. My point is this. This was a torrent of water. This was not a little stream. Out of God's mercy and grace, he provided, hear this, more than enough for his people. God provided more than enough. That's what he does. When Jesus turned those bread and fish and, and multiplied it, what did he do? More than enough. This is what our God does. He gives more than enough. When we get to 2 Corinthians 12, what does it say? His grace is more than enough. This is our God, a merciful, providing God for us. Do we understand his provision? Do we rejoice in his provision? In fact, let me say this. Do we praise God for his provision more than we grumble at God for not having what we think we need? 
Oh, to God that our praise for him would eclipse any grumbling and complaining in our mouths. Which leads us, we have a grumbling people, we have a merciful and providing God. Number three, we have a life-giving Savior. We have a life-giving Savior. Again, in 1 Corinthians 10, 4, the Apostle Paul, we read earlier, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. So Paul said that this story points to Jesus. He's the rock stricken for our salvation. He's the rock that flowed with water for the Israelites. In fact, the Jews had a popular legend, still known and believed by many in the days of Paul, that the actual rock that Moses struck literally followed the people of Israel during their days in the wilderness. So the, the legend was, as they went on, And walk, this rock just went with them, providing water for them as they went. And I I believe that Paul here is probably alluding to that legend, and he's saying this. Yes, a rock did follow them, but it was not a physical rock. It was a spiritual rock, and his name was Jesus. And he provided for them in every area of their lives and in every part of their journey. This rock was It was the presence of Christ among them, and it was a type of Christ. Moses struck this rock instead of striking the guilty people of Israel. Instead of striking us, God struck Jesus. And when God struck Jesus on the cross, according to John 19, guess what? Water flowed out. Water flowed out. Jesus died the death that we deserve to die. Now we drink the water of life, which is him. In fact, in John 7, you'll see it on the screen, verses 37 and 38, Jesus stood up and he cried, If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This is who he is. Think about this. In the Old Testament, God is described as being the rock of Israel, the rock whose works are perfect, the rock and fortress and refuge for his people, even the rock of our salvation. All of those things showing who Christ is to us. But let me say this. Go ahead and turn with me to the book of Numbers chapter 40. Or excuse me, Numbers chapter 20. In Numbers 20, 40 years after this event, So 40 years after this event, Israel once again came to a place where there was no water in the desert. And guess what the people do again? They complain, they moan, and they groan. They could not care that God did something amazing 40 years ago. All they know is in their minds they're about to die. And this time God's about to do something Incredible again, provide for them again, but God gives different instructions to Moses this time. In Numbers chapter 20, verse 8, listen to what God says. Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So speak to the rock. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. Verse 10. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And he said to them, Hear now the rock 
or he said, Here now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of the rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with a staff twice, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. God tells Moses, speak to the rock. Moses stands before the people. He gets upset. He gets angry at them. He sees in them their stubbornness and their hard-heartedness. He starts complaining and groaning about them. And what does he do? He disobeys God. Instead of speaking to the rock, he strikes the rock in anger and frustration. And because of that, he doesn't get to go into the promised land because God tells him, Moses, you did not in that moment treat my name as holy. And here's the difference, and don't miss this beautiful picture. God is teaching Israel here a deep and spiritual lesson, and that is this. The rock only needs to be struck one time for life giving water to flow out of it. Every other time that we need it, we just have to ask. That's all we have to do is ask. And this is meant to highlight the fact that Christ only needed to die one time. He doesn't need to come back and die again. His death once, get this, and for all. This is the death that he died. He doesn't have to be crucified again. God is satisfied with what Jesus has done. The question is, are you satisfied? Are you satisfied with him? All that God is asking of us, hear this, believe my son. Believe in my son. For you see, we were all dying of thirst in the desert of our own sin. And maybe we shook our fist at God. Maybe we just ignored God. Maybe we had ideas about God that weren't even worthy of God. You might even be here this morning and not even know how thirsty you are. You might be here right now and not even know how spiritually dehydrated you are in this moment. But let me say this. We are all dying of thirst until we drink the water from the rock, which is Jesus. And that is the meaning of the cross where Jesus died for you and for me. In his self-giving grace, Jesus laid down his life for us so that he might live in us and give us life. Jesus died so that we might live. And here's what I know. There are some today who are here or will be here who are spiritually thirsty. For some, it's because they have never, ever come to Jesus as living water. They've never come to Jesus as their life. They've never received from Jesus the true water of salvation. And may today be that day where they acknowledge their spiritual thirst, their spiritual dehydration, their spiritual death, and what Christ has done. Now, others are saved, but yet you stop thirsting for him. You stop drinking him in. You stop believing in him and trusting him in difficult times, and you stop coming to him. Look again at John 7. I want you to show you something. In John 7, Jesus stood up and he cried out, hear this. Look at the, the verbs here. If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink whoever believes. All four verbs that Jesus uses here are in the present tense. He's saying, 
keep thirsting, keep coming, keep drinking, keep believing. Listen, we don't just come to Jesus once with repentance and faith. We keep coming to him. We keep coming and we keep coming. And here's the deal. Don't miss this. Jesus keeps giving. Do we keep receiving? May we keep coming and keep receiving. Jesus, the spiritual rock, the well of salvation, the pool in the desert, the fountain, fountain of living water, he was not recognized in the days that riffed him. He wasn't recognized there. In fact, he wasn't recognized and received for who he is when he came in the Gospels. He wasn't. And he's not recognized even today for who he is. People recognize there's a God named Jesus, but they don't recognize that he's the Lord of all. Yet he is the only true water of life. And many people would rather die of thirst than come to him. Will you today, in whatever state you're in, let me just say this first of all, if you are lost today, will you come to him? Will you drink of him? Will you trust in him? Will you follow him? Will you find your satisfaction in him today? And let me just say to the child of God in here today who is thirsting, same words, will you come to him? Will you drink of him? Will you follow him? Will you find true satisfaction in him? Oh, that we would come to see him for who he is. He is the all-satisfying one. This world, the things of this world, the pursuits of this world will leave us never satisfied. And he brings us true satisfaction. Don't look away from him. Look to him. I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to ask Brother Frank, the musicians, to come forward as we enter into this time of invitation and consecration. Let's just pray together. Jesus, we thank you that you are the rock of our salvation. Jesus, you were struck once and for all that the the absolute waters of eternal life, living waters, would flow to us and even through us. That we can have satisfaction, oh God, in you, through you, Jesus. Father, help us. God, forgive us for being a complaining people. Forgive us, God, for grumbling and grumbling and grumbling. And really, God, for putting you on the witness stand as if we're the judge. Forgive us for for not trusting you to do in our lives, God, what only you can do. Help us, Lord, to trust you more. Father, help us all, Lord, to come to you, to believe in you, to drink of you, to follow you. Father, I pray for anyone in this place of worship today or who will be here that doesn't know you, that today would be the day of salvation. Today would be the day that their, their true, Lord, spiritual thirsting would be quenched. But also, Lord, pray for those that are in this room that are spiritually dehydrated. We have allowed circumstances to take us over. We've allowed a cobweb of human resources to draw us into where we're leaning on that. Or we've allowed a cloud, God, to block our vision of you. Forgive us and allow us once again to come to you, Jesus. To come to you, to drink of you, to believe in you, to follow you. Finish this time. In Jesus' name, amen.